Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, as Atlanta officials are responding to a shootout near a city shopping district that left a 12-year-old boy dead over the holiday weekend. I have spoken to the parent of the student that is deceased. Uh, I spoke to his mother. And I've also spoken to the parent of the student that is currently in critical condition right now at Grady, uh, and also to another parent that whose son was shot in the leg. In this hour, we'll revisit conversations with community leaders regarding approaches to curbing youth violence. Plus, yes, there's one more election to decide, and that, of course, is Georgia's Senate race between incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. So we'll hear what our political strategists, Fred Hicks and Julianne Thompson, have to say with just one week away. Very important community, very important community conversations coming up, but first this. Some Georgia counties opted for early voting last week, but today is the first day polls must be open for early voting statewide. Susanna Capilouto reports polling reveals the runoff race for that U.S. Senate between Warnock and Herschel Walker is going to be very close this time around as well. A bipartisan poll commissioned by AERP shows Warnock ahead by four percentage points over Walker, but that's within the margin of error. The poll shows Warnock is more popular with younger voters and women, while Walker scores higher with men and older Georgians. Warnock also gets nearly 90% of the black vote and leads among independents by 15 points. There's only a week left of early voting in this runoff with Election Day December 6, so both parties are pulling out all the stops with celebrity and political surrogate visits to get their voters back to the polls. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. Meanwhile, as of airtime, Georgia's Secretary of State's office reports just under 167,000 ballots have been cast overall in person. And this past weekend, long lines were reported both Saturday and Sunday at many, pre- at many precincts in the only weekend of early voting. Katrina Denson waited patiently in the line over an hour Sunday at the Buckhead Library. When I walked up today, I'm thinking, wow, there's actually a line on Sunday. You don't have to worry about getting off work or how long it's going to take off work, going before work or after work. So I'm really, really glad to see there are so many people that are out here taking advantage of the Saturday and Sunday voting. Now, some voters intimidated by the long lines left and scouted out other precincts, only to return to the Buckhead Library, where the average wait time was between 45 and 90 minutes. Not to be outdone, voters in line at the Joan Gardner Library branch in Midtown, they also waited for about an hour or more. According to Fulton County elections officials, that particular polling location, albeit small, is a high voter turnout location. Now, Georgia is set to hold a special election on January 3rd for the North Georgia State House seat of the late David Ralston. 
WAB politics reporter Raul Bali says hundreds gathered Sunday to rem remember the man who served as speaker for more than a decade. Ralston's casket covered with a state flag sat in the middle of the stage here at the Fanning County High School Performing Arts Center. Also on stage was a bipartisan group of lawmakers who talked about Ralston working across the aisle politically and personally, along with being an advocate for decorum in the legislature. A number of emotional moments came when speakers talked about Ralston's Christian faith. The audience included Governor Brian Kemp, along with a large contingent of state lawmakers. When he died, Ralston was the longest-serving current state House speaker in the country. Raul Bally, WAB News, Blue Ridge. And finally... Milton right up the middle, padding the lead for Georgia to the house, 44 yards. Well, the dogs did what they had to do. They handled the rambling wreck in the annual UGA Georgia Tech game. And Georgia's now an even bigger favorite to win the SEC championship this Saturday in Atlanta. Now they'll face three-loss LSU, who was upset by Texas A&M on Saturday. Never want to take any opponent lightly. Here's Bulldogs head coach Kirby Smart. You know, everybody's like, well, okay, you're the target, you're the hunted. I, I don't believe in all that. I, th I think that it's about us being the attacker. And us being the Bulldogs, Kirby, you're going to win that game. You know that, right? Georgia was a 10-point favorite over LSU before last Saturday's game and now is a 17-point favorite. UGA is looking for its second straight SEC title and the berth into the final four playoff for the national title. You heard it here, folks. UGA, Michigan. Who knows? Georgia has not lost a football game since November 7th of 2020. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned, in case you don't know, there is one more election to be decided in terms of that U.S. Senate seat here in Georgia. So who better to ask and get their insight? By the way, folks, uh, I have noticed that with these two, they used to tweet, hey, I'm going to be on the show with Rose, and they may have a picture of all three of us. Now they're just tweeting their pictures. No picture of me, but that's okay. Julianne Thompson, a Republican strategist and the president of Main Street Network Strategies. Fred Hicks, an Atlanta-based political strategist and analyst. What do you have to say for yourselves with that tweet, Fred? I'm not, I'm nowhere in the picture at all. <laughs> but your name is prominent and your logo and your color scheme. It's you. It's all you. Spoken like a true political strategist. <laughs> <laughs> You're famous. We're just we're just riding your tailwinds. Right? Oh, really, Mr. MSNBC? <laughs> oh, uh, well, that's Julianne. Right? You know, she was on there before I. So, I did. You know, I, I, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's it's get to. The, no, no. I'm very happy for you all. Just remember where you came from. As my 
grandfather would say. Uh, Fred, let me start with you. Early voting, we, you know, it's, look, it's not great numbers in terms of obviously with the with the regular election, but you know, you're looking at about two point seven three percent of early voting turnout so far. Um, does that really? Do you take a deeper dive into those numbers to see if it benefits either the Democrats or, or the Republicans here? Absolutely. And, you know, in relative to traditional runoffs, the numbers are really strong. Here's, if I can for a moment, I want to remind our listeners about what happened on November 8th. Senator Warnock won early voting in terms of uh, absentee in person, as well as absentee by mail. But he lost election day by 200 plus thousand votes to Herschel Walker. Mm-hmm. And so for these numbers, which are higher than uh, I think anticipated and certainly when you look at who's voting, these numbers thus far are really good. I saw an analysis this morning that said that if, uh, based on what happened on November 8th, it looks like Senator Warnock would be at about 62% of the early votes so far to 38% for Herschel Walker. What happened on November 8th is uh, Senator, Wa- Senator Warnock received significant support in terms of percentage percentage um, analysis, so 85, 87, 90% of this demographic or that demographic, but they didn't get the turnout that they mm-hmm. wanted and needed. And so looking at this and looking, we all expect the turnout to be much lower than the uh, 3.94 million that happened last time. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at this, looking at who's turning out and where the votes are coming from over the weekend compared to the first weekend of early voting uh, for the November election, this is phenomenal for Senator Warnock. Well, Julian, you've heard what Fred had to say, but also he said, look, you know, for Herschel Walker, folks came out on Election Day. Is that what you're anticipating to next Tuesday? You know, we really do. I mean, Democrats in the past several elections, Democrats have dominated early voting and Republicans have dominated uh, election day voting. Uh, but this is the early voting turnouts are at a record high uh, this runoff. I, I haven't seen anything like it before. I mean, in looking um, looking at Gabriel Stir- one of Gabriel Sterling, who works for the Secretary of State's office, looking mm-hmm. at one of his tweets, um, as of 10.30 a.m., uh, they have already seen 63,000 Georgians cast their vote today. Mm. Um, and like Fred said, this weekend voting, uh, including Sunday, was up by 130% from the weekend before. So it, it early voting has just blown the doors off mm-hmm. of, of elections offices all across the state of Georgia. And it's pretty significant. So I'm I'm interested to see the breakdown. Um, I have not seen the exact numbers of the breakdown, but I'm interested to see the breakdown of of who exactly has voted. Although I have seen some of the counties uh, with larger voting percentages, but this is significant. Julian, let me stay with you. For, oh, go ahead, Fred. Well, and to Julian's point, there was interesting to me is that through yesterday, so we're not including the sixty plus thousand people who voted so far today. Uh, but through yesterday, 46% of the voters were black and 39% were white. And I've never seen that um, once you've crossed over the 150 or 200,000 vote count where you have more black voters than white voters. Now, there are only 27 counties throughout the state that offered uh, voting this weekend. Mm-hmm. And, the, and a lot of those were the large metropolitan counties that have large numbers of black voters. But again, go back to my previous point, this is exactly what did not happen mm-hmm. in the November election 
um, in terms of where you had high turnout and high percentages. Looking at this for Senator Warnock, these are really good numbers. Um, but, but we are now entering, today is the first day of early voting everywhere in the state, and the hours are much more limited, generally mm -hmm. nine to five or seven to five. So I expect uh, for a lot of these numbers to change. I expect that you know, the percentages of uh, white voters to increase and older voters to increase and voters in, like, in places like Cherokee Hall mm -hmm. and Forsyth that didn't really have weekend voting to, to really turn out this week. So I think, you know, if you have us back on on Wednesday or Thursday, hey, can, no. but um, I think we'll see a little bit of difference, a, a, a little different uh, thing Fred, here. But Fred, I want to jump in for a moment because there was something that, that came out. It was in an AARP survey, mm -hmm. and it said, look, voters 50-plus could once again decide this year's elections. They're talking about that even in the runoff, we may see more of older voters and I guess older being 50 plus, um, you buy that? You, you you see that that being the case here, Fred? And I'll get Juliana's yeah, response. Yeah. I think historically that's accurate. And I think um, in terms of history, we know that Democratic voters and Democratic candidates in Georgia do better with those voters who are 45 and under. The older and honestly, the, the wider the electorate, the, the more that tends to favor Republicans. And so, you know, as this... Um, it's always about turnout. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why there's such a big push over the weekend. Uh, once the Saturday voting was cemented by the courts last week, there was a huge push by Democratic organizations to try to get college kids and younger voters out to vote. Julianne, older voters, and not to say that the younger, that the Generation Z and millennials and whoever, that they won't come back out. But you agree with Fred here and what the polls suggest that this will be decided by an older demographic and our apologies if you don't think 50 is older, but I'm just going by what they say. <laughs> um, I, I do agree that it will be decided by those over 50. And the reason being, and I'm sure Fred will agree with me on this, a runoff election is very different than the general election. It's very different than the primary because you have to turn people out just a few weeks after they went to vote in the general election. So it really is about, a grassroots ground game. It's not as much about television as the general election is. Although television commercials do play a role in it, this really is a get out the vote game. And it's just going to be, and, and usually Republicans are very good at that, um, except of course for 2021, mm -hmm. there were a lot of outside uh, forces and factors that, that factored into that. Um, but I do think that people who are over 50 are more likely to turn out again because they're more they're usually more politically astute mm -hmm. by that time in their life and and they know and they understand that the importance of coming out to vote whether or not that falls on republicans or democrats this time around remains to be mm -hmm. seen let me ask you Julian, well, because is there some significance with kemp's endorsement for herschel walker we start seeing more commercial we didn't see this in yeah, go ahead no, I do. I do think that Kemp's endorsement has significantly helped Herschel Walker. Um, I, I think it has built a bridge to a lot of swing voters who were Kemp supporters who need to turn out again. Uh, and it also, you know, includes many business leaders, which which makes the tent the the even larger group of traditional Republicans want to turn out a second time, as well as those swing voters that supported Kemp. So I do think it's a significant endorsement. Fred, you want to add something there? Yeah, you know, it's interesting to observe the campaign's competing strategies. So as Julianne just alluded to there, for Herschel Walker, uh, he's trying to get those Kemp voters to come back out and vote and to vote for him. 
remember there was about a 200,000 vote gap between Governor Kemp and Herschel Walker. And had he been able to close that gap, which he tried to do, then he would have won. Similarly, um, on the Democratic side, the Senator Warnock, and I, I pulled a pulled some data before I, before we got on today. Mm -hmm. There were two hundred, almost three hundred thousand African American voters who voted in the in the runoff last year, who did not vote in this November election. Mm. Almost three hundred thousand. Uh, about thirty thousand to forty thousand of those are people who voted uh, in the Republican primary at some point in the last few years. So you take that away, you're still talking about two hundred seventy thousand or so votes that were left out there from this November election uh, last week. And so if those voters turned out to, came out to vote, then Senator Warnock would have won running away with it. So both of, I think both camps are looking at this and saying, looking at the data and saying, okay, here's what we need to do. For Herschel mm -hmm. Walker, let's try to get those Brian Kemp voters back out. And if you are, if you're the Warnock campaign, uh, I think they are doing a laser focus and should be um, on trying to get the people who voted in the January runoff, the day before the insurrection, to come back and vote um, to vote in this election. And if they do that, let's say both sides are able to do it, mm -hmm. and Herschel Walker is able to get those 200,000 Kemp voters, and Senator Warnock is able to get 270,000. And we're just talking about African Americans um, who voted, who, who would tend to vote Democrat, then Senator Warnock wins. So both have a path. It's just who's going to be successful in executing their plan. So, Fred, let me ask you this, because with Julianne, we talked about Brian Kemp. And now, what is the President Barack Obama factor here coming back? Well, I think that's exactly why you're seeing him come back. He, he was going to come back anyway once the runoff happened. But I think, again, if you're looking at what you're trying to do, you're trying to, if you're, if you're the Democrats, you're trying to electrify the black vote. Listen, we saw yesterday a uh, rally down in Met uh, Metropolitan Old Stewart Ave with mm -hmm. Martin Luther King III mm -hmm. and Ambassador Young and black preachers. And we haven't we didn't see that uh, in the November election, November 8th election. And so you saw Senator Warnock had a rally in Clayton County. He had a, he had a rally with Congressman Hank Johnson over in DeKalb County, all heavy African-American areas where you had a huge number of people who did not vote in November in the November 8th election. So we're seeing that go forward. And I think that's where the president's uh, visit will play in. Again, they're trying to electri electrify the African-American vote because even though Senator Warnock and Stacey Abrams received a high percentage of black votes, mm -hmm. they didn't get the the absolute number. It, it, so Fred, are you saying it's the black vote that decides this? I think it is the easiest pathway, especially when you're dealing with two African-American candidates that you absolutely uh, could do and again, and we saw Governor Kemp make a play, and I think uh, given his large margin of victory, he was able to certainly was able to pull off. It looks like somewhere between, been on exit poll, somewhere between 13 and 17 percent of the black vote, uh, which would if he's on the 17 side of the black vote increase. in general or the black male mm -hmm. vote, because we could have that conversation too. We're in not general, going to right general. now. In general, in, okay. in general, well, in Julia, general yeah. let, let me get Julianne's response to that. Is this about the black vote? That's the pathway. That's that's the demographic for for both candidates here. Well, I think it's certainly an important demographic. Um, whether or not that is who decides uh, the the who goes to victory in this election remains to be seen. But it's an extremely important demographic, and there is no doubt that that the rallies and the get out the vote efforts that have. Uh, that have been taking place for Senator Warnock have been extremely effective in the African-American community. Um, and I think that you're seeing that in a lot of the early voting. 
before oh, I let you all go. I'm sorry. I'm go sorry. Ahead. I said that is the. I meant to say that that is a key demographic for Senator Warnock. I think for Herschel Walker, it's the Trump voter, right? So having Trump's endorsement, even though it's interesting, the president has not. Well, do you want Trump's that. endorsement That's right now, considering th- this little dinner he had at uh, his place <laughs> recently for Thanksgiving? Oh, and Bri- and so Governor Brian Kemp has come out and said, "Look, dude, you know he's he has come out and slammed him in a sense for that." So, do you want Marshall to? Walker has not. Right? Do you want to even mention Donald Trump right now, leading up to well, next Tuesday if you're Herschel Walker? He already has the endorsement, and the Trump supporters and Trump voters already know that. So to me, when I look at this from a data standpoint, I go back and look at David Perdue's uh, performance in the, in the primary, and I look at that as a baseline of, of votes that Herschel Walker is going to get. That's what, 500 and something thousand or something like that votes. So he doesn't have to campaign with the, with the former president at all. His voters, that is the Trump voters, already know that he's with Herschel Walker. And that's uh, them turning out to vote. Let me ask Julianne this. Should Herschel Walker make a statement about this dinner that that uh, Donald Trump had with with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, this known white supremacist people call him? Should should Herschel Walker say something? Brian Kemp has. I'm going to leave that up to Herschel Walker. Um, but I think the main thing that he needs to concentrate on is his own campaign. Uh, As far as the key demographic for Herschel Walker, um, of course, I do believe that, you know, Trump voters definitely support him and they will most definitely turn out to vote. However, I don't believe that they are the key to victory. The key to victory for Herschel Walker are swing voters that supported Governor Kemp and being able to get those voters to turn out again, along with those traditional Republican voters who maybe voted for Governor Kemp in the general election, but didn't, but skipped the Senate race. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's those Kemp traditional Republican voters getting those out. That is going to be what is key for Herschel Walker and not the Trump voter. Julianne, looking ahead, because it's it's never too early to talk about the next presidential election, looking ahead to 2024. We know Donald Trump has said, look, I'm coming back. Here I am. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of issues with that within the GOP. Do you see anyone? Who do you see maybe being the person that will be able to to come out and and go toe to toe with him, so to speak? Well, I think that you're going to see multiple people um, that are going to come out and run in this election. Of course, I, I, when we've talked about this before, uh, Ron DeSantis is a huge name um, among Republicans. He is obviously somewhat making Donald Trump a little bit uncomfortable or Trump wouldn't be attacking him in the media the way that he has. Um, but, you know, I'm going to agree with something that Fred has said in the past. And the more time goes on, the more solidified I think it becomes. And that is don't discount Brian Kemp. Now, he has not ever said that he wants to run for president. He mm-hmm. has never said that. He has, you know, he's been very focused on Georgia, which he should be because he was just reelected as governor. Um, and, and his focus has been where it needs to be. But he has everything it takes to run a very competitive presidential primary com- campaign um, against the former president and and to be successful at it. He has he has shown that 
he can take on the former president and be victorious, uh, even if Trump is against him. And he stood up to him and done what he felt was the right thing to do. And I think there are a lot of people out there that admire that and a lot of people that would support Kim. But as I said, he has never mentioned that he wanted to run. Um, DeSantis, of course, I, I think we all know that he plans to. I, I think that there's, you know, there's of course there's Mike Pence, there's Nikki sure. Hayes, Tim yeah. Scott, uh, there's many others. Uh, so remains to well, be Fred, you well, got about a minute. What do you think? Sure. So two things. Number one, while he's never said it, it's very interesting that just yesterday Axios broke the news that he he created a federal pack called Hard Hardworking Americans. He being Governor Kemp, um, mm -hmm. Hard Hardworking American Inc. So that allows him to play at the national level. That just happened. And then secondly, again, while he hasn't said it, I think him speaking out against a white supremacist at the dinner today uh, that, well, that Trump had last week is again positioning himself as the anti-Trump but traditional Republican. That's the kind of person who uh, voter that uh, that stayed home in the runoff last year. He's positioned himself. That's right. That's why we call it politics. Fred Hicks, an Atlanta-based political strate strategist and analyst, and Julianne Thompson, Republican strategist and the president of Main Street Network Strategies. Again, their pictures bigger than mine. I'm not even pictured on the Twitter tweet, but whatever. <laughs> Thank you both for taking time. As always, I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. For having us. Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned in that press conference yesterday, the Atlanta Police Department and Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, well, they're asking for the public's help after a shooting outside Atlantic Station on Saturday that killed 12-year-old Zion Charles and wounded five others. We're asking that anyone that has camera footage, either from their vehicle or their property, to please cooperate and give APD that in, uh, information as they can uh, and submit it to APD. Atlanta police are still looking for suspects, and they say a group of young people was ex escorted out of Atlantic Station for disruptive behavior and then encountered another group of juveniles on the 17th Street Bridge as to what led to the gunfire that has yet to be determined. Mayor Dickens said he had been in touch with parents. I have spoken to the parent of the student that is deceased. Uh, I spoke to his mother. And I've also spoken to the parent of the student that is currently in critical condition right now at Grady, uh, and also to another parent that whose son was shot in the leg. Now 12-year-old Zion Charles attended one of the KIPP charter schools. APS officials tell Closer Look counselors will be available for the students if requested by the charter school. They are a part of APS. Now, some months ago here on Closer Look, we devoted an entire program addressing youth violence. And that roundtable discussion featured Joshua Bird, anti-gun violence program chair of the 100 Black Men of Atlanta, C.J. and Kelly Stewart, founders of LEAD, Center for Youth, and Charles Barlow Sr., CEO of the Pan-African American Chamber of Commerce and executive director of Saving Our Sons and Sisters International. And we started off with a listener question about the perception of guns among youth. A listener says, hey Rose, I hope your guests realize that for many of these kids, they gotta be cool. That's not too obvious to adults. I did ask the listener to, to take it further and they said, well, there are too many guns out there in the first place, a grievous opportunity for kids trying to look cool. But is it more than that, Kelly? So I serve on the board of the Community Foundation from Greater Atlanta, and uh, Courtney English from the mayor's office came to speak to us, and he shared with us this stat. 
52% of violence in Atlanta has no underlying crime to it. Basically what that means is we're somewhere and we get mad with each other. I get my gun, you get yours, and we shoot it out instead of talk it out. What that says to us as a society is we have children who are growing into adults who have not been taught how to resolve conflict. Well, guess what? That goes hand in hand with the systemic issue of racism and poverty because when you are living in survival mode every day, I don't know if people really understand what that means because if you've always known where your meal is coming from and you've always had a roof over your head and you have not had to move five times in one year, not due to jobs, but due to being evicted or due to your vouchers not being accepted, when you have that level of trauma in your life, conflict resolution is in the distant because you're always in the urgent here and now. And so CJ can talk more about how we address that in our program because we know it's an issue. Now we got to address it. So CJ, how do you address it with the boys? So starting with, you know, just taking the the model of the Negro Leagues, which was um, for many reasons was established so that boys can become men. It was a rite of passage. So if you were not playing baseball, uh, you were not able to fully develop into a uh, to a man. And so, you know, for us in our Legacy League, this is our fall boot camp where up to 100 boys in Atlanta Public Schools are trying to become a lead ambassador. Mm -hmm. And so a lead ambassador is the highest level of our programming, and ultimately we want them to become major league citizens like you, Rose. And so these are people that are just strong contributors to our um, our community. So within that legacy league is 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 ironic, you know. Again, you know, starting from a place of conviction, we didn't have the funds to hire umpires mm -hmm. when we first had our league. So I just said, you know what, y'all are gonna have to call balls and strikes uh, outs at bases and so on and so forth. So what we end up learning was it was a great tool because you can give boys information about conflict resolution, but if you don't give them the experience and the mm -hmm. opportunity to put it in action, so every day they come to the field, if if a pitcher throws a strike and you believe it's a strike, uh, or and then the batter, you know, he he doesn't agree, y'all got a few options right there. You can fight it out, which we don't condone. You can have a verbal altercation, which we don't condone, or y'all can get this figured out. And 99.9% .9 of the time, they always do it. So again, information is not power. Knowledge is power, which is information and experience. Joshua, I want to. I just got a. We got a message via social media from someone who says, "Please talk about the need to support parents with information about raising children. We need to plan a way to educate and nurture the parents so they can begin to pass on to their children." healthier ways of thinking, behaving, and modeling appropriate behavior. The parents also need to be carefully taught. Absolutely. And I'm going to start with the end of it. It talks about the parents need to be carefully taught. Um, if I understand it correctly, yes, it's important that the, the parents do a great job at raising their children. But as a professor, I always go up to the board and I ask students. Now, now I'm here to write down the tools. I'm here to write down the books that equip parents with the skills they need to raise kids. What book do we use? And so, and so when we do that and we go there, we understand that parents need tools too. I feel like it's incumbent upon our society, the government, to make sure that our school system are equipping children to be productive members of society. And part of that deals with how do you resolve conflict? Because this conflict resolution training, which we've given at Best Academy, Ivy Prep Academy, and Kirkwood over 10 sessions, 
it not only saves lives out in the community amongst children when you talk about gun violence, mm -hmm. it saves jobs, it saves relationships, and it makes society just a greater place. Chuck Barlow, you hear what Josh was saying. I understand what the person sent this message via social media, and I, and I know parents, some parents that say, look, I do the best I can to be a good parent. I'm working two jobs. Perhaps my spouse is working two jobs so we can afford this high rent. Come on <laughs> Just now. another issue, you know. Um, and we do look for, we're hoping there are some community options in our neighborhood. Perhaps my son's not very good at baseball. Perhaps I have a child who likes STEM, you know. Uh, perhaps I have a child who wants to be a public radio host. Well, hey, here I am. Come find me. I got you. But there are so many other optics around because often we say, well, it's the parents, it's the parents, and that might be. But there are some other issues with the parents because they, it's not that they want to be a bad parent. They're working. I think that's fair. They don't have the tools. Right. Do they have the tools to provide their children with this, children with this level of education? And what we know is even if you do a really effective job in training your child, do you speak all the languages that are spoken in Atlanta, which is a global city? Are you well-versed on the Internet and in cyberspace and now this new metaverse? So at a certain point, we're going to have to rely upon other entities in the community to come in and help out. Chuck Barlow, down there in Jackson County where you are, what's been working? Well, we, we at Sasi, uh, Saving Our Sons and Sisters International, we actually have a parent training program because we realized that, um, you know, our, our thing is find out what the cause is and then come up with a solution to it. Mm -hmm. And so we, we provide training. This is a nationwide um, tested uh, program that we actually train parents. And and I, I hear what you, I, I, I kind of laugh when the, the you, you read the email from the lady. Uh, we do agree because we realized that a lot of problems in particular with black males is that they can't read. Um, we did tutoring in an elementary school. I had a third grade uh, young male that could not read. Now, the first thing when I tell somebody that, the first thing they say is, well, that's the parent's fault. I said, well, you gotta understand something. And in many of these cases, this parent is working two, sometimes three jobs, got four or five kids, and they're a single parent. So when they get home from any of those jobs, when do they have time to sit down with that kid? They don't have it. So why don't you go tutor? Why don't you go into the room, into the class, into the school, and provide some tutoring service? All you got to do, we, we did tutoring um, one, two hours a week. Two days a week, we do an hour with sometimes with five students at the same time. It made such a difference that school came off of the failing list. So you think your little bit can't make a difference. It can make a difference. So there, there's a solution for every problem, but you first of all got to find out what the problem is and then come up with the solution for it. Kelly Stewart, you and I have had conversations offline where you've talked about even just with what you all are doing with the young boys in baseball, you you all have, full disclosure, you've had to even come out your own pocket and help the family of that young man because there are so many other circumstances. Absolutely. So when you talk about um, stabilizing a youth, a youth that is dysregulated, meaning they are exposed to high levels of frequent trauma all the time, stress that has turned into trauma because they don't have a buffer, that is 10 times out of 10 for us, it's generational. It is not just an occurrence that's happening now. So it, it's in order for one of our boys to make it to practice, maybe we had to assist with transportation. Maybe while one of our boys was at school, 
the family got evicted. And so he came home to his stuff being on the, on, on the street. So for us, it's like, let us use our resources to get storage, get the family in, you know, temporary housing until we can connect them with longer term solutions, like with our partner, Chris 180. But Baby boy got to come to practice today because at the end of the day, we want him to feel like he's a child and to stay a child as long as he possibly can to solutions. Because I know a lot of people are talking about solutions. We use a curriculum called Habitudes. It's a character building, SEL building, social emotional learning building curriculum that uses images to convey the habits and attitudes Mm -hmm. that we want our boys to um, to to embody and so when you think about a generation that's tech savvy you know all these words and text they're not listening to that because they're looking at images and stuff all day online so if you have these images associated with these behaviors you can have a different kind of conversation about leadership with them cj i have a listener who just uh, sent me an email, email saying that at the root of the, at the end of the day it really is about modeled behavior being the ultimate answer what do you think of that I totally agree. I mean, culture is all about um, behaviors and, um, and 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 being able to see it again. Going back to, you can give me the information all day long, but I need to experience it. And so I was fortunate enough uh, to experience that through my coaches. And even to that point, you know, Kelly and I both are um, Buckhead parents. So we have our oldest daughter, Mackenzie, graduated from Westminster in 2019. And then our youngest daughter, McKenna, is a 10th grader at Lovett. Mm-hmm. We know firsthand that even so, I know what it's like to be a bankhead kid, mm-hmm. but I also know what it's like to be a buckhead parent. And buckhead parents need a whole lot of support as well. I'm talking a whole lot of support. What do you mean? Take the further because I know somebody almost just ran off the road when you said that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just keeping it real. <laughs> yeah. So you know, when, so day to day stresses, like Kelly said, you know, so the the buffer for that is calling your neighbor. Uh, if you don't call your neighbor, I don't care how much money you make. You have a lot of executives who can't get out of school when their children are being disruptive in the school because children at these schools are disruptive. And so you can call a neighbor, you can call a nanny. Um, and then after school, you can get a kid out to sports, you know, so that that way they can, um, you know, release some energy. So we always say it takes a village to raise a child, sure. but it takes a village to support parents. That is true. But Joshua, and then for kids who may not, you know, you were great at sports. I, I, I was pretty good. Kelly, you are good at sports. Joshua, you look, you might have been a you know, tight end or a wide receiver or first baseman. Hey, look, everybody don't want to play sports, you know. But often we that's kind of the go-to. Um, but we know also that our kids, uh, they love STEM. Mm-hmm. They're creative. You all had a, a creative writing. Mm-hmm. Poetry, poetry, art, essay contest. You know, and, and and look, we don't. We could spend a whole nother episode talking about how what's the first thing to get cut sometimes in school districts when they have to make budget items. They have to make you know all these different decisions. They tend to cut the arts. Absolutely. So the community then you you believe mm-hmm. can step in and add those extracurricular activities for our youth. Absolutely. And and just going back to something that was said earlier, when we talk about some of the systemic issues, you know, we have to understand that youth violence, according to the World Health Organization, is a public health issue. And the question becomes, is this, is it should youth violence be considered a public health crisis here mm-hmm. in the United States? I say yes. You look at what a crisis is. I think what we have now fits that definition. But just for the listeners to understand, when we talk about public health and something being a public health crisis, think about your doctor. If something's wrong with you, 
your doctor treats you according to your needs. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to public health, we have to treat the entire community. Part of it might be deciding on what some of those behaviors are that CJ was just talking about, those best practices, so that folks can start modeling this. So, so Dr. Satcher uh, has, has, has the, the 16th Surgeon General of the United States, said, mm -hmm. he said that public health, um, public health and gun violence was a public health issue years ago. We're planning a conference in January of, or February of 2023 where we'll again revisit that and declare again that public health uh, issue it, and gun violence is a public health crisis. And so um, I think that we have to understand that dynamic, create that awareness model so that we can start modeling that behavior in response to that. And so then now we're getting to this part where we're talking about, OK, then we need then everybody, all of y'all have said collaboration. Then now comes into what can we do on a national or from a federal level? Obviously, some people first thing they think of is it has to be money. But you mentioned Dr. Satcher, who's been a, mm -hmm. a guest on this program many times in the Satcher Institute. Chuck Barlow, then, if this is a nationwide problem, we know the increase in, in youth violence, then what role should, if any, the federal government play in this? Well, I, I think that uh, when you talk about the federal government, you know, primarily from a federal government perspective, they, they need to provide the funding, but the community needs to do the work. Uh, Somebody said something to me. Oh, when, when you were talking about the, you know, you got to have kids busy. And I don't mind the devil's workshop. And my, my granddaddy would say, a uh, mule that's kicking ain't pulling, and a mule that's pulling, kicking. I know that's country, but I am country. That's I all right. So if you don't have them, they have, more, they have more time to get in trouble. We have formed a program that can be national and would like to invite each of you on this. It's called Opportunity Youth, it's mm -hmm. called Ready by 2030. And, and the first Wednesday in every month, uh, we have a, a, a Zoom conference. And there, there are resources on this call from every corner you can think of. And what we have is we have young people to come in and tell us what they need. We had a young man uh, that was brought in by one of our board members. Um, his grandson mm -hmm. came in from Seattle, had been getting through all kind of trouble in Seattle. He came here. He came on one time and we have a, a role model uh, young man that uh, we started with in, in Washington High School back in 2010 has become very successful. And he was on talking and this young man latched on to him. And after that, he said, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. This old man was changing his whole life because he was a model. Now, anything, this, this program is designed so that Whatever that young person needs, if they need a job, if they need job skills, if they need counseling, if they need mentoring, there's somebody on that call that will say, I will do it. We'll provide this resource. And see that we got to get them working because a lot of them are unemployed mm -hmm. and they don't know how to find a job. If they need training on how to interview, there's somebody on that call that will help them in that process. So this is a collaboration that brings all resources together to say, I want to help you, young person. And see, young people can come on. We're inviting young people to come on at any time. So I want to invite you all to it. I'll send you the link. Uh, you can send it to them. Absolutely. And, and I want to bring this up because what Chuck Barlow talks about here, listen, we know there is a domestic violence hotline. We know there is a suicide hotline. We know there is the hotlines if you are facing an eviction. And someone, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if we have a hotline for youth violence, for someone who may be experiencing it or a parent? It, it. So the hotline for youth violence is mentorship plus sponsorship. Mm 
So we have mentored children to death, but we have not provided them with opportunities to take that mentorship to another level and apply it in their lives. One part of our programming is to teach our boys the game of baseball because the statistics show that the vast majority of them won't play it past high school, maybe college, maybe not in the pros, but you can become a coach. You can become a coach at the high school level. You can become a coach at the college level. And so we have two tracks. You can be on field or you can be front office. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that as we're mentoring youth and telling them to keep hope alive, we're giving them opportunities where they can put into play what they're learning from us and earn money while doing it. Our internships are paid internships. So if you're trying to offer someone an internship and say, well, they should just be happy for the experience, that's not where we at right now. You know what I'm saying? Our, our youth need to be able to earn money because if they aren't able to earn money within the guardrails of our programs, they are going to be at the end of ramp selling water because they need our society runs off of money. CJ, it is no secret right now when we are talking about the gang violence, the gangs here in the Atlanta area. Um, I think we all have heard Fonnie Willis, District Attorney, Fulton County, earlier this week laying it out about her county. Um, what do you tell your boys about the decisions and what choices they make? And, and do they talk to you about the struggle with, with gangs and, and, and not being lured into that activity? They do. I mean, we are intentionally scouting out African-American boys in Atlanta public schools, grades 6 through 12, that are underperforming in grades, attendance, and behavior. That is a very unique thing to be doing that and doing it year round. And that's a focus for you all. That is a focus and also a focus of African-American boys uh, that are living in low income um, homes and boys that are not motivated to play baseball. So we're going to start from the premise of baseball is not that hard. And the promise is when you finish our programming, uh, you'll understand our values and they'll become virtues. And so, you know, for our boys, you know, so a game can have a negative connotation to it, but it can also have a positive kind of connotation. So for us, I mean, lead, we are a positive gang and we have power. We have we are significant. We make promises. We keep promises. And Kelly and I have both had experience. So when we're saying that, then at that point, we are convicting them, which gets them connected to our mission. So we don't have to spend a whole lot of time um, talking to them about the activities that they have. But one of the things that Kelly does a great job of, just very simply, she'll say, you got to make a choice. So you can either be in the negative game or you can be in our positive game. But if you're with us right now, we are promising that you have a 100 percent chance of graduating from high school. But then also, too, if you desire that you, you want to be an astronaut, that's a quick text message to me, from me to Shane Kimbrough, who just got back from space mm -hmm. six months ago. So we're well connected. And so as we lay that out unapologetically, a lot of times they often choose to be with us. Joshua, how do you all connect with kids when they say, listen, you don't understand what it's like, Joshua. You know, I'm out here and I live where I live. I'm in my neighborhood, but I've got these barriers, these challenges. How can you understand what I'm going through? And, I, and you've probably heard that. I hear it. I hear it often. And fortunately, and going back to what CJ said earlier, you need folks with the knowledge, with the information and the experience. Fortunately, I have that. Fortunately, I grew up Section 8, housing, 
you know, food stamps, you name it, victim of gun violence, saw people shot and killed. I have that experience. I understand them and I can talk to and connect. But I want to say this and make it in no uncertain terms, Mr. Rose, is this. This gun violence and this youth violence is a public health. It's a community-wide issue. So help, So let me ask you this, because mm-hmm. you've said that before mm-hmm. on more than one occasion. Right, right. And no one is disagreeing with that. So public health departments need to also play a role in this, you think? Well, the government. The or, government? Because here's why. C.J. and Kelly can only do so much. At a certain point, you talked about Fonnie Willis, our district attorney. Accountability. Mm-hmm. Where is the accountability for the safety and security of society? I'm a criminal justice professor. Policing started with volunteers. Or if you're a taxpaying individual, part of your duty was to go out and patrol. Mm-hmm. There was no one else. We learned that that didn't work. We needed an organization to focus on the safety and security of society. And so we said we need policing all the time. Policing also started with slave patrols. Right. Yes. But, 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 okay. but, 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 but what I'm saying is, and, and what I'm saying is, I understand that. I I'm got a criminal you. justice professor. I, I got you. But I what you. I'm saying is this volunteer force, this volunteer force is not as effective as people who are committed to the mission. And people who are not only committed to the mission, but organizations that are held accountable, okay. such as our school systems, when we're held accountable to make sure that students are doing well in and, school. But educators will tell you, Joshua and, and Kelly and CJ and, and Chuck, you all know this. Educators will say, I have majority of my kids who want to learn, but if I'm spending 20 minutes breaking up fights or trying to discipline somebody else's child about something that they know better, it's all these optics involved. But are we teaching them conflict resolution in school? Are we teaching them how to res- We're expecting children to behave, but we've never taught them how to behave. So are we starting pre- pre-K? I think so. I think it's a 12K. I, th- I think it's a K-12 initiative. We have to teach individuals how to resolve conflicts because that's, that's going to help the teachers. That's going to help the students in school and in the community. But right now we're expecting things. We're expecting them to have tools that they don't and have. And we should know, too, it's not just we're not just talking about just zip codes in southwest Atlanta because during COVID-19 in the height of this and we saw folks and other zip codes who were acting just a little bit crazy at school board meetings because they didn't want their kids to wear a mask. So we're talking about modeling behavior. If you see your parent at a school board meeting cussing out the school board because they don't want their kids to wear masks, then, you know, let's just be clear about that. That's all I'm saying. Now shut up now. And we also have to understand that this is not just on the school. It's not just on the teachers. It's not just on the parents. It's not just on the church in all the other entities in the community. It is on all of us. I mean, Mm -hmm. CJ and I have two girls, we're married. And this parenting thing is hard. So I can't imagine how my grandma did it as a single parent. This thing is hard. If we got about five families that are our go-to for a girl, I'm I'm running late. I'm gonna need you to pick up McKenna so she's not standing out at the school by herself. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have that network of support, this parenting stuff is hard. Couple that with a generational deficit of resources. Something happened to your car, $2,000. That'll take you out. That's Mm -hmm. stress in the home. That stress spills over to the children. The children take that stress to school. We got to help each other and stop pointing fingers at Mm -hmm. one another and use those of us who are well-resourced in other areas to help people instead of looking condescendingly at people. Chuck, I've got just a few minutes, but I'm going to start with you as we begin to wrap up. If there's something that you want folks to take away from today's conversation, what is it? Yeah, I want, uh, okay, we talked about government engagement. Now, what, what I, this, I hope you'll send this article to them as well. 
uh, they formed a neighborhood safety and family engagement um, office. This is the city uh, formed this. And their responsibility is to foster community-based strategies to help prevent violence and to increase public safety. Okay. It, it ha you have to get the entire community. No one entity can resolve this. So we have to work together collaboratively to address these issues. All right, there's that word again, community, Joshua. Absolutely, and we talk about collaboration. Uh, our anti-gun violence committee meets on the second Thursday of each month at Flipper Temple AME Church off of Student Movement Boulevard, and we're also working with the Satcher Health Leadership Institute for a uh, anti-violence conference uh, at the beginning of next year, um, January or February. And this is our, our anti-gun violence committee is open to the entire community for the reasons that we've been discussing. And that's going to allow us to better serve the needs of our, of our community and also help reduce these incidents of violence in the community. All right, CJ. So I believe that black youth are over-mentored and under-sponsored in Atlanta. And the last thing is just that uh, programming uh, is only as good as policy. So we definitely need more strength at the policy level. Kelly Stewart, you get the last word. My husband said it all. I'll give it to him. High five to you. <laughs> That's my last word. That's your last word. <laughs> he, he really said what I was going to say. <laughs> that I wasn't expecting the because I'm so used to you just laying it all out. I know, but that's like 25 years of marriage. He's like in my brain. That was great. <laughs> Kelly and C.J. Stewart, founders of Atlanta-based Lead Ooh. Center for Youth. Joshua Bird, committee chair for the Anti-Gun Violence Committee of 100 Black Men of Atlanta. Charles Chuck Barlow, senior CEO of the Pan-African American Chamber of Commerce and founder, co-founder of Saving Our Sons and Our Daughters. Thank you all so much for being part of this. It's just, it's just a little bit, but every little bit helps, right? Amen to that. I appreciate y'all taking the time. We will continue to cover this issue in our community and appreciate what all everything that you all are doing for our community. This is 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.